0: Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent listener supported show. To support it, go to WeirdHistoryPodcast.com. I did not plan on talking about this this week. I had another topic in mind. Um, but history is in the news, at least in the United States. And if you live in the United States, you have seen probably a lot of coverage about confederate monuments, and the removal of confederate monuments. This is not a topic I could get out of my head. So here we are. Before I dive into confederate monuments, uh, I want to give you some context about what I think about monuments in general. And in general, I appreciate them aesthetically. I think that they sometimes look kind of neat, but for the most part, I do not particularly like them. I am a fan of history but I am not a fan of historical monuments, because most of the time, they rob their subjects of nuance. Most of the time, they reduce their subjects. They take things away from them. Uh, For instance, in my hometown of Portland, Oregon, there is a mural on the side of the Oregon Historical Society. Uh, It depicts, among other things, uh, Lewis and Clark. And Lewis and Clark are looking off into the frontier, into the future, whatever. They look the way you would expect Lewis and Clark to look, you know, on a mural that's trying to like glorify and uphold them and all that. And it looks honestly kind of kitschy. And looking at it, you would never know that Meriwether Lewis had a lot of stuff going on. You know, he had lifelong mental health issues. He could have been schizophrenic, maybe bipolar, maybe he had chronic depression. Um, Back then, they didn't have those words to describe him. Uh, They called him melancholic. They called him hot-headed. Thomas Jefferson, in his journals, wrote that he thought Lewis had a peculiar character of mind. He was also a man who loved his dog. He had a pet Newfoundland he went everywhere with, including to the Pacific Ocean and back. He was a man with great complicated inner demons. He was also very smart. He accomplished, you know, a fair amount, and later on he killed himself. Looking at that mural on the side of the Oregon Historical Society, you would never get that. You would never guess that Meriwether Lewis was this fragile, frail, human person who did something fairly significant and important and impressive and then, later on, took his own life. Instead, he's reduced to kitsch. Instead, he is just something that's blandly positive. And I think that does damage to his history to take away his complexity. There are monuments that can be done well. Directly across from that mural on the side of the Oregon Historical Society, there is, I think, a slightly better monument. It's a statue of Abraham Lincoln. In downtown portland's park blocks that statue is larger than life it makes lincoln look big and important but he doesn't look like he's just looking into the future and conquering it instead he looks like he has a weight on his shoulders this is a man who seems to be having a really hard time of it he looks like he's stepping forward but it's a labored step but he's doing it anyway He looks strong, but it's strength that seems to come at a cost. And that statue, which I still think has its problems, at least shows Lincoln at his most maybe desperate and embattled. And it's also kind of suggestive of his tragic end as well. That's a bit better, but even better than that, I think, is the Vietnam Memorial in Washington DC. Going there and looking at all those names on that black marble, it invites contemplation. To be there is to be in a space that makes you think. It makes you contemplate why those names are there. It makes you think about the identity and subjectivity and whole world that was each of those dead people that it memorializes. And walking away from it, you feel something. You feel something about what war really is. But that's rare. That's really, really rare that any monument has the emotional punch or reality or the invitation to thought that the Vietnam Memorial does. Most monuments are just a guy on a pedestal looking cool. They're not interesting, they're not nuanced, and they're not even good art. They are just blandly positive. They are reductions of humanity. And that's definitely the case with a lot of Confederate monuments, the monuments that have been in the news lately, which, one might argue, are designed to be blandly positive, are designed to reduce their subjects, and are designed to erase nuance in favor of a particular version of history. Monuments always reflect two different eras. To a lesser extent, they reflect the era they commemorate, but to a greater extent, They reflect the era that they were built in. The type of history people commemorate reflects the ideas, the values, and the biases of the people who built it, not the people who are being built about. Those people are dead. And that is definitely the case with the vast majority of Confederate monuments. Now, most Confederate monuments do not come from just after the Civil War. Most Confederate monuments were not actually built by the people who fought in the Civil War. They come from decades or even over a century later. The Southern Poverty Law Center has been researching and looking into this, and they did a report called Whose Heritage, which is amazing, and I am relying on it a lot in this episode. I've linked to it over on weirdhistorypodcast.com, and they note that most Confederate monuments were built in two separate eras. One is the era between 1900 and the 1930s, And if you look at a graph of when these monuments were built, that's where you see a gigantic spike. That is where you see most of these generic statues of soldiers getting put up. That is a period of time that corresponds with the Jim Crow era, and also the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States. We'll get back to that era in just a second. There was also another small bump in Confederate monuments between 1955 and 1970, the Civil Rights Era. In both cases, building Confederate monuments were part of large anti-civil rights propaganda campaigns, and it's that early one between 1900 and the 1930s that I'm going to talk about in this episode. So, these monuments were not the result of individual towns or municipalities making the decision to memorialize Confederate soldiers. Uh, instead, the big spike in monument building in the early 20th century was was the result of an organized campaign by a group called the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It is a neo-Confederate group that still exists to this day. And the United Daughters of the Confederacy was part of a larger organization in the South to glorify the Old South and also to work in partnership with the then-resurgent Ku Klux Klan. According to Christina DeRocher, a historian at Moorhead State University in Kentucky and the author of Raising Racist, the Socialization of White Children in the Jim Crow South, the UDC, that is the United Arts the Confederacy, in the early 20th century, was involved, along with the Klan and other organizations, with this whole big propaganda campaign to preserve a distorted version of Southern history. According to Durocher, the UDC had over 103 active chapters in the early 20th century and over 100,000 members. Its founding members worked in partnership with other Southern organizations and used rhetoric about glory, honor, heritage, etc., but the United Daughters of the Confederacy, along with affiliate organizations like the Children of the Confederacy, worked to do things like change school curriculums, get kids on board with a certain version of Southern history, and downplay and marginalize African American history in the South. These organizations taught, De Rocher writes, quote, a historical construct that glorified the antebellum South and slavery as representing the desirable and natural order of the world. Unquote. So this is a single big private organization working in concert with groups like the Klan, and they are waging a propaganda campaign on a number of fronts. That includes textbooks. That includes getting to the kids and teaching them the quote unquote true history of the Confederacy, and it included inserting Confederate monuments into public and semi-public spaces. A lot of these monuments. We're on private property that was viewable to the public. So think something in front of somebody's office or store or that kind of thing. So again, we're not talking about municipalities making public art that emerges organically from their community. We are talking about a neo-confederate advocacy organization raising a bunch of money in placing statues in public view, basically imposing this kind of neo-confederate history onto the communities that they wanted to put statues in. Now, to build these statues, the United Daughters of the Confederacy worked with a company called the Monumental Bronze Company, based in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And the Monumental Bronze Company, they made statues, tombstones, all that. And, as near as I can tell, they didn't really care about history, racism, public memory, or any of that. They just wanted to make a buck. The monuments they made were cheap and plentiful, and they weren't even real bronze. Much of what they made was from a zinc alloy they euphemistically called white bronze. And if you've seen any of the recent footage of Confederate statues, you might have noticed that they crumple really easily when they hit the ground. Uh, I noticed that when I was watching the news, and I thought it was sort of surprising and that's because these statues were made from cheap mass-produced metal by a company that made cheap mass-produced statues. It didn't take me too long to find a catalog for the Monumental Bronze Company online. I found one from 1882, and in 1882, for the price of $450, which today would still be cheap, it would still be under $20,000 in 2017 money, you could get a generic statue of an American soldier. For another $150, they would model a head that looked like a particular person, as opposed to just, you know, a guy with a mustache, which was their default head. And the mold that they had for this, that they used, was of a Union soldier, or rather an American soldier. They just had a single soldier that they made, and when they started getting contracted to do Confederate monuments, they just used what they already had. The molds used by the Monumental Bronze Company were used for both Union and Confederate soldiers, oftentimes with very little or maybe even no difference between them. They pumped out hundreds of monuments for squares, cemeteries, private property, and, and used the same design regardless of who was buying. You could see a memorial, say, in front of a building in one city, and go somewhere else and see the exact same memorial. The plaque on it might be different. The stated meaning might be different. Uh, the name on it might be different, but it was the same statue. It was made by the same company. Um, the Washington Post did an interview with an art historian called Sarah Beethan a while ago. And according to Beethan, these mass-produced statues offer a distorted view of history because she says, quote, Our concept of what a Yankee or a rebel looked like comes more from these post-war representations in monuments than from what they actually were, unquote. Beethan says that this includes a lot of elements in the soldiers' clothing that was included because... That's what the Monumental Bronze Company happened to have to make statues with. Those were the generic molds available. And specific details about what uniforms actually looked like were often just discarded or ignored because they didn't want to actually put any real thought into the thing that they were making. So that's one of the reasons why I personally am fine with the statues coming down. These statues promote bad history. That in slavery and white supremacy is what the Confederacy was about full stop. Honestly, I wouldn't even be okay with commemorating it with good memorials. Even if these things were actually good art, there's still a case for taking them down. I realize I probably just lost some listeners there. I probably inspired a few negative ranty iTunes reviews, but, um, don't care. Worth it. Also, as long as I'm being pedantic about Confederate stuff, um, that thing that you see as a Confederate flag is not, in fact, the Confederate flag. That familiar X design with the stars on it, that was never the Confederacy's national flag. The Confederate States of America went through three different flags, none of which bear any resemblance to the flag that you now see being waved around as the quote-unquote Confederate flag. That X flag with the stars on it was the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, the main fighting force of the Confederacy. Sort of. The Army of Northern Virginia didn't even use that flag all the time. And when they did, they used the square version, not the modern rectangular version. Uh, the modern rectangular X with the stars on it is from the 20th century, and it became popular during a civil rights movement flown by people who were anti-civil rights, like George Wallace. He unfurled one during his famous Segregation Forever speech. So it's not something with deep historical roots. It's a variation on a historical symbol that was adopted for modern usage in reaction to progress. Again, a lot of these symbols have more to do with the ideologies and biases of the people using them than the time period that they claim to be about. So don't talk about preserving history when a lot of this stuff is bad history. So what do we do with these things? What do we do with all these statues that are dotting public spaces or semi-public spaces and promoting bad history, white supremacy, and the rest of it? Well, one idea, and this is not an original idea of mine, this is something that a number of people have suggested, is to look to other countries for good examples. A whole lot of Eastern Bloc countries had statues of Lenin and Stalin that were taken down after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Plenty of these statues were relocated to museums or parks where they could be viewed properly contextualized. You would be able to see a statue of Stalin looking all unrealistically triumphant, but it would be there with a plaque, a plaque talking about Stalin's propaganda campaigns, a plaque talking about how Stalin glorified himself, a plaque talking about how that public imagery was integrated with other communist propaganda. In Budapest, there is a park called Memento Park, and it displays 42 different communist monuments. Uh, the statues there, they all have proper context and the like, and they're removed from their role as propaganda. I want to read you something from the park's designer, an architect named Akos Iliad. Here's what he had to say about the project. He said, quote, Every violent form of society formalizes the need and the right to reanalyze, touch up, and appropriate their own past in order to shine favorably in the light of the historical necessity of their regime. Democracy is the only regime which is capable of looking back to its past, with all of its mistakes and wrong turns, with its head up. The wonderful thing about looking back is that you are free to do this. Democracy is the only regime that has dignity. This is what I was trying to describe in that sentence, which became the key sentence of my design. This park is about dictatorship, but as soon as this can be talked about, described, and built, this park is already about democracy. After all, only democracy can provide the opportunity for us to think freely about dictatorship or about democracy or about anything, unquote. And I think that that is something that's very important to keep in mind here, that the very ability to reanalyze and recontextualize and to also look at our own history more clearly is a strength not a weakness. That is something that we should be proud of, more than any statue mass-produced by a company in Connecticut made of cheap zinc. And one last thing, there is a difference between remembering and commemorating or glorifying. I mean, obviously, we should remember the past, but be careful what you put on a pedestal. If you glorify history, then that thing on the pedestal might eclipse everything else. It might be all you see, History is deeper, more terrible, more horrifying, more troubling, and more interesting than anything some cheap monument can tell you. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter, and thank you all of you who do that already. Uh, We're on iTunes. Go there and give good glowing reviews with many stars. That would be excellent of you. And if smoke is coming out of your ears after this episode, go and give me crappy reviews. And you know what? That increases my visibility too. So if you want to rant about how terrible this show was and about how it's an insult to your Southern pride, do it. The iTunes algorithms still counts that as engagement. Also, I'm on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Go there and click the like button. I'm on Twitter at Joe Streckert. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.